Well, we're going to uh, press on in Revelation to chapter 13, and this is a very important passage um, for us to take some time with. Um, it's uh, finally going to explain to us something that was introduced a little earlier and never explained, um, because the explanation needs to be full. And so instead of inserting the in, uh, who the beast is and what it represents and the history and future of it, um, the author just mentioned its presence, um, and with the, the revelation coming later of who and what the beast represented, and we're going to look into that now. Reminder of where we're at. Um, we have just uh, really gone through a historical perspective of Israel, of the, yes, the monitor's off. It is on. Somebody might have switched it to... There, is it now? now? Is it on now? It's on. Someone might have switched it from A to B. There's two... Uh, there's two channels. There we go. She's good. Okay. All right. All you kids in there, behave. Nobody screams. That's good. So we are, um, we, we have been looking at uh, the historical narrative as presented in chapter 12 of Christ's birth um, from an earthly perspective. Remember, we saw that in chapter 5 from a heavenly view. What's going on in heaven? Uh, and that was focused around the scroll, and we saw Christ's arrival and the new song and all the excitement of heaven. We didn't really get to see the effect on other entities, particularly outside of heaven, um, or on the fringe of heaven, as I like to put it. Um, we didn't get to see that. And in chapter 12, we did. Here's the earthly view of what happened. We have the, the virgin out of the stock of Israel uh, bringing forth a child. That child, uh, is purpose is fulfilled in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Satan is attempting to destroy him and is through the, both the temptation as well as the crucifixion to try to stop his work. Uh, fails to do so. In his anger, we saw last week, he turns his attention away from uh, the, the ones that have been given a place to hide. We, we certainly see him going after the woman. The woman is saved, delivered uh, from the flood, the armies, this uh, intense group that has been sent to destroy her. She um, is able to escape into a place prepared for her by God. She then, he then turns his attention from her to her other offsprings. And we saw the effects of that upon the early church as well as the Jewish community during this time following um, AD 66 uh, when we found uh, Cestius's failure to capture Jerusalem and his army largely uh, decimated uh, in the valley there described by Josephus last week. And so we have this historical narrative in place to kind of provide us a time of uh, understanding that now we are transitioning. And we've really been doing that for a couple of chapters, but especially in chapter 12, we have a real opportunity to transition our attention, that, that we want to take some time to talk about what's going on on earth. We are introduced to that by the, the, by the work of the two witnesses. And uh, we're no longer in heaven, we're seeing what's going on on earth, and, and we're introduced to these characters, 
And uh, very quickly in chapter 11, we, we find these entities talked about. Um, and uh, uh, so we, we've been brought to earth. And now, instead of looking at things from heaven, we're going to look at things from an earthly point of view. Um, the heaven's kind of been suspended at this point, And we've kind of, uh, in a very... Uh, uh, edge of your seat kind of uh, uh, account where the trumpet has been sounded but we don't know what's coming. And uh, we used to call those cliffhangers. Um, and I remember those episodes, watching them on TV, those half hour things that were cliffhangers and every episode, at the end of the episode, your hero or heroine was certain death was facing them. They were dangling by some thin rope over a precipice. They were being uh, tied up and getting ready to be dipped into hot oil or whatever, something, you know. And uh, there was always a cliffhanger at the end of the episode to make you come back and watch to see how they got out. So the next week, you had to wait a week to see the next one. And so, um, typical cliffhanger view. We have heaven kind of suspended. The seventh trumpet is sounded, but we don't get to find out really what comes out of it. What, what does it produce? Um, we are now taken back to um, earth. And let's take ourselves back, not just to future earth or even John's present. We're going to go way back historically and kind of take another running start by introducing the earthly uh, timelines. And so we've had heavenly timelines, but now we're going to have some earthly timelines. And so we find the earthly timeline uh, really in chapter 12 of what is affected Christ have on Satan and his demons and on the people of God. Why is this the time of great tribulation? Well, it's the time of great tribulation today during throughout the church age because the devil prowling around earthbound. He's prowling around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That creates this Period. This age of grace is also a great age of risk because we have this enemy who knows his time is short, who is angry that he failed to, to uh, stop the mission of Christ, who is no longer given access. He knows he is beaten. He knows he's defeated. He knows his time is short. And so what is he doing? He is acting like an, a, a caged animal. He's acting like a, that lion prowling around just seeking to destroy as many as possible to keep them from hearing the truth, to keep them from following the truth, to keep them being faithful to the truth. This is Satan's work. And so he has assaulted the people of God uh, throughout this church age. And, uh, and one of the entities that he's done that with historically, even beyond the church age prior to it, um, was the beast. And so we saw it introduced in uh, chapter 11. Uh, we now want to uh, visit and find out who exactly or what exactly is this and we come to chapter 13. And again, uh, we're going to need God's help, so let's ask for it, shall we? Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word before us, and we know that it is here to communicate to us uh, important and applicable information that is not just for someone somewhere or just for us to uh, uh, test the waters um, with or to satisfy some curiosity, but rather is there to instruct us of how we ought to live and, and be wary in this age, uh, this age of the, of the nations, this age of the, of the prowling lion. And Lord, give us insight and wisdom in how we are to conduct ourselves, um, being harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. 
And Lord, uh, we hope that by this study, that, that as you have given us this information, that we might uh, apply it to our lives very carefully and, and uh, prudently. And we praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to chapter 13. Again, I'm going to give you this warning, okay? Um, my position on chapter 13 is very, 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 very different than any positions that you'll have out there by and large. I am not the only one who teaches this. Um, there are several other books and people out there that uh, predated mine that saw some of this, um, but they were largely discounted and uh, mostly the 70s. Um, and 80s a little bit, um, and marginalized. Uh, the main movement would view chapter 13 as introducing to you uh, two individuals who are going to be major players in the future and have nothing to do with the church age. Um, I don't know, I do know how they attempt to uh, resolve this with the other passages that we're going to be studying. Um, but it is unsatisfactory. In my view, it is, violates all the rules that we use for interpretation anywhere else. And so um, I just want to set that out. I know that if you pick up your commentaries and most of your books out there, that most of them are going to discount this and say these are two people. Um, but hopefully by the time we're done with this, in probably three or four weeks, um, you will uh, say, I don't know how they can get that. And maybe even after tonight, you'll start to see that. But let's go ahead and take a time to read at least the first ten verses. I'm not going to get to the second beast. Uh, I just want to really talk about the first one. And we probably won't conclude that tonight by, by a long shot. So let's look at chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and seven horns. And on his horns ten crowns. And on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, the blaspheme of his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here's the patience and the faith of the saints. And so you find yourself wrapped up in this and some final instructions we won't get to tonight in verses 9 and 10. But we find this entity that we are introduced to and we find that we are on the seas. We are at the <coughs> sand of the sea. And the seas are going to represent the peoples of the world. And how do you know that, Pastor? Well, if you go to chapter 17, um, the angel comes along and uh, begins to explain to uh, him these, this information. And uh, in the midst of this, he talks, she talks, she, the angel talks about the many waters. Um, and what do the waters represent? And in verse 2 it says, With 
the, whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. I have the wrong verse. One says, I'll show you the great heart that sits on many waters. Ah, 15, thank you. Verse 15 says, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And again, we can correlate that back into uh, chapter 13. And, and there are other passages too that, re- that uh, the, the waters represent being uh, among the global population. The, and this is the way the Bible describes it. Um, they don't describe the different races of men because there's only one race of men and they're human. They're, it's a human race. Um, but they distinguish people by their nations, by their languages, uh, their tongues. And so we have this globalness. So out of all the peoples of the earth, there rises out of them, out of the, the population of, of our globe, um, this beast, this entity. <clears throat> now those who would say that this entity is a person, and they would usually describe this person as, as the false prophet, um, have a lot to deal with because we, we've got a lot, or, or the Antichrist, some identify it, some switch them. And, but we have this one described and we um, have a difficulty because it's a beast and it has a multiple manifestation. The first thing we find about the beast is that he has seven heads. It's a seven-headed beast. And of course... Um, most people describe it or show it as some kind of dragon with long necks so you can get the seven heads separated from each other. Um, and so the first thing John notices about the beast is it has seven heads. Um, and that's kind of unique. Um, by the way, we're going to go back into Daniel because Daniel's going to introduce all these images to us with one exception. And the exception is going to be the heads. Daniel never saw a multi-headed beast. He saw multi-horned beast. We've seen that, well, a beast with two horns, one greater and one lesser. Um, he's seen beasts with four horns, one, one prominent horn that broke off and four grew in its place. And so, but he never saw multi-headed beasts. And so the multi-heads is unique. This is something new and different. We're going to have to study it a little bit. And we can't get it from the Old Testament and, because it's just not there. But let's go ahead and just um, turn to Daniel. Let's just get some foundation on beasts, shall we? Uh, So let's go to Daniel, chapter 7. We're just going to establish some of this because this is a new thing. Beasts in in a prophetic vision is not new. Um, And just like we did with the woman and the sun, moon, and stars and all the representations there, uh, we went back into Genesis, we found out what it meant, we brought it forward and applied it to Revelation. And this is the prophetic tool or the interpretive tool that we were all taught to use and that most people abandon for some reason when they get to Revelation. But we're going to continue to do it. We're going to continue using the same mechanism. We're going to go into the Old Testament, find its meaning, bring its meaning forward into the New Testament. So, we have Daniel who has on two occasions these visions of beasts. So let's read chapter 7 and I'm, just, I'm not going to read all of it. Um, you'll see the correlation pretty quick. Um, <clears throat> verse 2, said Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, <clears throat> and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And there's the sea again. Okay? 
And the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. The man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth. Between its teeth they said, Thus to it arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, a beast. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And you might say, well, there's four heads. Um, we're going to talk about that in just a second. After this, in verse 7, I saw in the night vision a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, and it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And there's your ten horns again. And so we have the same kind of imagery. Would you agree that that's pretty much correlating with a lot of what John saw? Um, I don't know how many more descriptive things he could give to get us to connect those dots between the animals that are described, the beast, the sea, the horns. We have all of this kind of uh, correlating. And although this is four beasts coming in succession to one another, and we only have a single beast coming up um, in uh, revelation, yet we can readily see the correlation. And, and everyone agrees with that. Everyone agrees with that. Everyone sees that. That's not new to me. All right, so let's, here's where we diverge. Let's go later on in the chapter. Daniel doesn't know what all this means. And so he's going to ask, what does it all mean? And verse 15 is, is, uh, is the interpreter's um, struggle. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And uh, every preacher has had those days. <laughs> Not necessarily visions, but this passage is really troubling me. And I just, I'm grieved and I can't sleep and I got to work through this. So he didn't know. He didn't know how to interpret it. He, and this is a guy who interprets dreams. And he couldn't interpret his own. And uh, so finally, um, he came near to one of those who stood by, asked him the truth of all this. And he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And verse 17 says, Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. Now, right there, you say, Well, those are four individuals. Um, but that word for kings there is bigger than just a person. And if you look down, um, oh, we'll, we'll just read down through it. Uh, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which is different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue of its feet and the ten horns. The rod and said, and the other horn which came up, which before which three fell, and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and then judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Then as he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break into pieces, ten horns or ten kings, who shall rise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first one that shall subdue the, the, the three kings." And it goes on to describe this other horn. And so we, we see that the beasts are representing really four different kingdoms. And yes, kings can stand for their kingdoms, but I don't ever see it the other way around. And so the four beasts are four kingdoms that are going to come on the earth in succession to each other. 
and beginning where Daniel was. And that first beast we can recognize pretty readily um, by its first king, Nebuchadnezzar, and the events that happened with it, with him. Um, and that first kingdom would be Babylon in Daniel. The second one, we know historically what comes after it. Um, what happens after Babylon was the Medes and the Persians came along the scene. After, and Daniel ministered in that time period, correct? After the Medes and Persians came the Greeks. The Greeks came through, and uh, the, the statement that it had four heads is going to be more clearly communicated in the next vision, um, because Daniel just kind of skips through those. He's, not, he's really just fascinated by the last one. He doesn't really give much attention to the first ones, even though the first two are the ones that are for his lifetime. But uh, the Greek one is described as four heads, that is four other kingdoms are going to come out of that one Greek. The Greek kingdom is going to be divided four ways, and we're going to see that uh, down the road. And that is going to be a little bit helpful for us. And, so, and then the fourth kingdom, of course, we recognize is the Roman Empire that comes out and its multiple manifestations all the way to the end, which we're going to talk about uh, much later. And so what we want to do is just simply recognize that beasts in visions are symbols of kingdoms. That's all we want to derive. So let's go to chapter 8, because he's going to see the first two again. They're going to be presented to him this time as a ram and as a goat. And again, the goat has a prominent horn. It's going to break off four, going to grow in its place. And it describes all of this. And again, Daniel is at a loss. He's like, what does it all mean? And um, verse 15 says, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Uh, he describes him. And, uh, and he's getting ready to explain what he saw. And uh, so let's jump down to verse 20. It says, The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. And so this gives us a correlation that we can start to see that the beast represents the kingdom and the stuff going on in the head is representing what's going on in that leadership of that, whether it be the horns, uh, heads, crown, all that stuff is really calling us to see uh, uh, something different than looking for, sometimes for individuals, sometimes for other nations. Again, a king can stand for his country, um, but I don't see uh, a beast standing for a king, but rather the kingdom. And so um, Babylon, the first beast, uh, certainly includes and is descriptive of Nebuchadnezzar, but it extends to his son as well, and uh, the other kings that replaced him. Uh, certainly, the, the Medes and Persians had multiple kings, and yet they fulfilled the expectations there of that kingdom's reign. And so it's not exclusive of the kings. It certainly is inclusive of them, but it is much bigger. And so we're not looking for an individual. We're looking for a beast. We're really looking for a kingdom, a nation, an empire. That's what we're really pointing to. And so let's take that description there in Daniel, because Daniel didn't know. That was the first time these images have been used, um, and Daniel didn't understand them, and so he had to have them explained to him not once, but twice. So he now knows. So now we can go to Revelation 13. And we can very quickly identify that this beast 
having multiple heads, seven heads, and we're going to find out about them a little bit better later, um, was rising up out of the sea. And so you're looking for this manifestation of an empire or empires. And... Um, and not really an, an individual entity. And we come to the seven heads, the ten horns, ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And so each one, each representation or division, subdivision of the beast is blasphemous in its nature. Even going back to some of the first ones. And this I want to spend just a little bit of time understanding is that uh, the nature of nations and their founding and why they exist and, and, and uh, to what extent are they blasphemous in their intent. Um, fundamentally, we can roll this back all the way to some of the early uh, formation of people against uh, the curse of God. Um, the first one that really pops out at us in Genesis of men congregating themselves to avoid the curse is, of course, in Babel. And we know that account pretty well, the Tower of Babel. They're going to get together. They're going to build a tower. God comes down, looks on it, and says, hmm, interesting. Look what these people are up to. Instead of spreading out and, and uh, dispersing themselves from each other, and, and instead of populating the earth, they are congregating and kind of setting up some kind of a, a civil system and uh, engaging in this great endeavor that is not commanded by God, and God isn't pleased with it at all. So that means what? It is an endeavor not for God, but against Him. And God comes in, He's just pleased with it, He says, I know what I'll do, I'll just give them all different languages, and let them see if they can finish the job then. But they can't communicate to each other. And we have the confusion of the languages, and hence we get the word babble. Stop babbling at me, which means talk in my language. Uh, use real words that I understand. And so that was the first... Uh, congregation of men against God, and really all the nation building from that point forward, um, with the exception of Israel, because God's going to call them out very uniquely, uh, and wants them, and overwhelmingly, you can't read through the text of the Septuagint and not conclude that God wanted Israel to be different than the nations. Why? Because the nations, as a rule, were blasphemous in nature. They were attempts to thwart God. They were attempts to say, um, like Cain, um, you know, and, and many others in Cain's line, um, I shouldn't have to bear the penalty of my sin. Uh, it's too much. And so I'm going to fight against you. And so whenever we see people congregating themselves into these units we call nations, these uh, uh, self-ruling or with overrulers um, engaged in it, um, from God's perspective, it essentially becomes a state of blasphemy because you're essentially putting your trust in that instead of in God. And God didn't command the nations into existence. They came into existence really as efforts to thwart the uh, curse of God on men that by pooling resources, that by um, engaging in, in this corporate activity, we can ease each other's burdens and not need God. 
We can have specialization. We can um, have infrastructure. We can essentially um, help each other out so that I'm only doing a part of the work and you're only doing a part of the work. We're not all out there on the sweat of our brow. And ultimately, it's going to benefit some people who don't work at all. They just rule is their work um, and to oversee. And when you look at the history of, of cities coming into existence and nations um, to have God's word say that, that a blasphemous name is on every representation of that outside of Israel is understandable. They would often uh, use religion to uh, bring uh, loyalty to the crown or to the head of state and, uh, and thus they became, uh, how should I say this, uh, unfriendly allies in ruling men. I'm going to use religion to uh, get people to recognize me as their ruler, even though I don't really like that religion. But I'm going to use it because it meets my purposes. So we have this description. Now, I told you the seven heads is really odd. It's a, it's a strange manifestation um, of, of the beast. And it's the one thing that John was perplexed by um, overwhelmingly more so than anything else. Let's go to Revelation 17 because there, um, that's the one thing that's going uh, to, the, the, the horns are going to be dis, uh, described for us too, but the one thing that we're going to be looking at is how do we know this beast is? Well, in verse 8 of chapter 17, the angel comes, and if you want to know that it's the one with the seven heads and the ten horns. Right? That's in verse 7. So, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life and the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. We're going to study that a little bit later on. Verse 9. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. These are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. We're going to stop right there. Verse 10. There's more describing it a little bit going on. Um, but we find this uh, description of seven heads. All right, John, in your day and age, seven heads, five are already gone. Wait a minute. Is this future? Well, five of these heads are already gone. They've already fallen. They've come, done their job, and left. Um, one is in John's day. One is still to come, future to John. And so these seven heads are not uh, simultaneously at work. They, are not, they don't exist simultaneously. They are, in fact, um, chronologically sequential. Five did fall, one existed in John's day, and one is yet to come in John's time, um, well into the future. And so we find that these seven heads are representing seven eras, seven rules, seven empires that have come, five of them have come and gone, a sixth one was there when John was there, and there's one to come. And so we're not looking for a person we are looking for a, a, the rule of nations. 
We are looking in the realm not of individuals, but of empires. We are looking for kingdoms. And so let's back this up. We know which kingdom reigned while John was having his vision, correct? That's pretty simple. That's Rome. So we can just back right up and because of Daniel's vision, that's going to help us quite extensively for the next four backwards, right? That's going to take us, or next three backwards, I'm sorry. Next three backwards. So we know Rome is the one that existed. That's the sixth head is Rome. So there's got to be five before it, five that had already fallen. We know Greece preceded Rome. We know that the Medes and Persians preceded Greece. We know that the Babylonians preceded them. And because we know our Old Testament really well, we know exactly who preceded the Babylonians, right? It was the Assyrians. And we know who preceded the Assyrians, and that was the Egyptians. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, Rome. There are six out of our seven heads. This is not a future person being described that has uh, lineage in all of these nations. Or uh, the beast is obviously representing something that has gone on since all the way back to Egypt. So, what do those six heads have in common? What is it that makes them notary um, nations or empires? Uh, and why does uh, Daniel give him that vision? Why are they the ones uh, pulled out and used and uh, to show the history of the nations, uh, of all nations, among all peoples? Um, not because they were necessarily the greatest. Uh, there were empires greater than even Rome. Roman Empire was pretty powerful and lasted a long time. But uh, the Mongol Empire was bigger. It covered more territory. It lasted a very long time. Um, and that came out of Mongolia. The Mongol Empire came out of Mongolia. Imagine that. And so that one went... It was huge. It was a huge empire, right? Stretched from... Almost pretty much from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Wow. It dwarfed the Roman Empire. But it never went one place. Where did it never go? It never went south. Into Israel or Africa. Israel particularly. These are the six nations that have ruled over Israel. Egypt, of course. Israel went down to there first, right? And so Israel was in captivity in Egypt. And so that's the first nation that raised itself against the nation of God. That said, we are going to subservient, make subservient this nation to our will. That the people of God are going to become our slaves. And we are going to conquer them. And of course, in the ancient mindset, if you conquer a people, you conquer their God. And the issue um, there at the Exodus wasn't just about losing manpower. It was also about whose God is whose. And those ten plagues directly impact the false gods of the Egyptians. They worship some of those entities that were used to against them. Frogs and such. Um, daylight. Ra was their, was their god. Right? Ra the sun god. And so God just said, oh, I can make, I can make it dark. Boom. <laughs> now where's your God, Ra? 
And so Egypt's the first one that had authority over Israel. Did Assyria? Certainly. They had, uh, they're the ones that conquered the northern tribes of Israel. And so Assyria rose to power and they did unspeakable things um, over the northern tribes of Israel and they were uh, conquered much of the southern region and really, if it weren't for God's intervention, miraculously, outside the walls of Jerusalem, they would have taken it all. But because of their blasphemy against the God of Israel, um, God, remember... The, remember the lepers that went out there and said, the army's go, we're going to die in here, we're going to die there, it doesn't matter, let's just go out there and get some food. They go out there and the whole place is empty. And they stuff themselves and they go, oh, it's probably not right for us to keep this to ourselves. <laughs> let's go tell everybody that the army's gone. God destroys it. And so Jerusalem is relieved. So the Assyrians are backed off, but they still had conquered um, 90% of it, Israel. Then we, of course, recognize Babylon. We know the, the account there of Daniel and the conquering of, of Judah and, and uh, their, their overwhelming uh, multiple times sacking Jerusalem, at least three times. Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem. And, and then, of course, uh, Syria-Persia, uh, we find them having that authority, although they do lend aid to rebuild the temple and, uh, the, and the city walls. Um, and then Greece comes along and they conquer Jerusalem very easily um, because the Jerusalemites had read the book of Daniel and were expecting him. They were expecting this guy, this great conqueror, this single horn of this uh, beast. So when he showed up, they simply had a reception for him. And interesting that Napoleon, not Napoleon, <laughs> Alexander the Great um, had a vision um, and before he ever rose to real power, he had this vision that he would come to this great city and he would be uh, received as king by an a, uh, entourage dressed in white. And uh, guess what happened when he got to Jerusalem? They didn't set up battlements or anything. They just basically surrendered the city, lined the road. Uh, they're all dressed in white and they received him and he was like, this is the city of God. And uh, he did no damage to it. In fact, many, many, many Jewish people became Greek warriors. They joined the Greek army. This was man, God's man. And, um, of course, that was destroyed. Um, he was probably assassinated. We don't know. But he died. Um, was replaced by his four generals because they had no heir. And it was divided into four. The one horn divided into four. So we have four heads. Four kingdoms come out of the Seleucid Empire, the, Ptolemaic, the, the Ptolemies uh, Empire, out of more of the Egyptian part of, of, the, of, the, of the Greek Empire at large. So none of them attained the full empire. They stayed four different divisions uh, for the balance until the Romans came in. And of course, we know the Romans had authority over Israel. And uh, so we have the six heads. We know what they have in common. We see them historically... Uh, Five have fallen, one is, and so we're left from the angel knowing that there is one more head uh, that is to come in John's day that we can look forward to. We should look forward to another empire. It's not going to last very long. It's going to be pretty brief. It's going to uh, suffer um, a pretty powerful blow that from our perspective is going to kill it, going to destroy it, and yet survive somehow um, in a, another form.
And so we have this description given to us and we're not quite done because there's also an eighth head the angel talks about and we don't not sure right away where that comes from but in chapter 17 verse 11 it says the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth the eighth what the eighth empire to have rule over Israel so there's going there has been six we know there's been six if we believe we're in the end times there should already have been seven because the Bible says the one that's going to be confronting Christ is actually the eighth empire to really rule over Israel. Um, and that's the one we're looking for. And so we should have seen an intermediary empire that had some global authority that ruled over Israel. And that's what these have in common. Uh, not their power, not really their length uh, duration, um, but rather their relationship with Israel, the people of God. And so we have that clue given to us by the angel. This is what the beast represents. It represents all of these nations. It represents the efforts of man to organize themselves and oppose God and his people. And this we need to recognize that fundamentally there's only one nation on earth that was birthed by God that was brought into existence by God. And that is Israel. All other nations, all of them, are the manifestations of the work of men. Now, does God uninvolved in those? No, I would not say that. I believe he is the one who sets up kings and kingdoms. Um, that he is certainly uh, at work in those circumstances. But fundamentally, um, the work of the nations is to oppose God. Not to aid him. And we're going to see some of that played out much later in, in Revelation 13 of, of can a nation claim to be godly and still do ungodly things. And we're going to examine that more fully. But we find here that uh, the beast also has some connections in verse 2. It was like a leopard, like a bear, and given a mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his authority. It gave him three things. The dragon provides him three things. Power, throne, and great authority. And that uh, over this entire span of the seven heads, going all the way back to Egypt, that Satan had a role, had a, a work that he was trying to accomplish, thwarting God uh, through the work of these men. And he did that by seeking to give them his power, that is Satan's power. He tried to give him his throne, that is that his, his role there, his reign uh, on the earth in this season of sin, and his authority. He's trying to grant these all to these nations. And uh, some of them, we look at how they rose to power and you go, how in the world did that ever happen? And we, we, we begin to need to recognize that there were supernatural elements involved. That Satan was engaged in the process of nation building. He did lend his power, his throne, and his authority to these nations. Because fundamentally, he raised up the Pharaoh. He wanted a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph to destroy the people of God. 
God intervenes. Now, did God raise up that Pharaoh? To, yes. And again, going correlating with this morning's message, um, Satan means it for evil. God means it for good. How does that work? Well, I'm not God. I can't exactly explain that. But God says, I've raised up this Pharaoh for this time so that he could be stubborn in his will against me and, and so I could show my power. Um, how did he do that? He did that not just in his own personal will, but he had help. And uh, we're told here that the dragon aided these empires. That, that he, he gave these three things, power, throne, and authority, to them uh, to exercise these blasphemous works against God. Does that mean every single entity, person within those empires were evil? No. Does that mean every king was evil? No. But as a general principle, as a rule, their purpose was against the people of God and thus against God. They were blasphemous. And this we need to recognize about nations and empires is that our trust isn't in them. They aren't um, designed by God. There is one nation that is called out by God and that is the nation of Israel. Can he work through other nations? He works through all other nations to accomplish his purposes. In this mystery of allowing evil men to do evil and yet to contain them sufficiently and to raise them up at such a time to accomplish his will, yet not be engaged in their evil, but allowing them to do what they choose to do with this power and authority. And, uh, and this, this tension goes all the way... Oh man, I've gone really late. This tension goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. How did Satan get there? How did he get in the garden? Didn't God have to let him there? So did God want us all to sin? We need to be tested. Tempted. It's the same Greek word. And so when we look at the nations, we recognize that there's this tension that I can't completely explain. Satan's involved. God's engaged. Um, and ultimately, it's all going to come to uh, his glory. Um, but the, the pathway to there is fraught by evil and blasphemy and the work of Satan. Even while some of those kings, uh, we look at King Cyrus, we look at Darius, we look at the Pharaoh that did know Joseph, we, we look at Nebuchadnezzar, and we go, these guys, at the conclusion of their lives, honored God to some degree. Doesn't change the purpose of their nation. Okay, So we're going to pursue this a little further next week. I'm gone way, way late. I am so sorry. I get kind of excited and I lose track. Sorry. Okay, so first principle, a beast equals a nation, not a person. We're not looking for two people here. We're looking for empires to fulfill um, the description given to us in these passages. Let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And uh, again, we pray that uh, we might be careful to recognize that um, no nation calls upon our loyalty compared to the place that we are citizens of. That it is in you we trust, that it is your kingdom that we wait for, that we are citizens of, and that we are simply strangers in a strange land and one that is often blasphemous in purpose and in practice. And we pray that we might be uh, cautious and help us in that.
In Christ Jesus' name, amen.